Welcome back. back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today we are covering Memoir 44, the first war game that we've ever covered on this podcast, a game about troops marching up and down the map. You got soldiers, you got tanks, you got artilleries. You're going to be shooting at each other, strategically positioning yourself, and of course, rolling a lot of dice. So we'll be talking about the decisions that exist therein, probably do a lot of comparisons to some of the other more Euro fair that we've done on this show. So Brendan, how are you feeling about that? Are you excited to dive into it? Yeah, I'm very excited. I think this episode is going to be really, obviously, this is a a decision space deep dive episode. So it's going to have all the hallmarks of that. But I think what we end up discussing might be a little bit different just based on what this game is, what it represents as a as a game and as a product. And I'm excited to delve into that conversation. Uh, We've also never covered you mentioned never covered a war game. We've also specifically never covered a game on World War Two, which is sort of a genre in its own, I think. Uh, So it'll be interesting maybe to delve into that a little bit. But Jake, I'm really, I want to hear your rating. I want to hear your review. We've been playing this game together and I'm just, I'm very curious. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Happy to give my rating for the game. It's, it's a game we've been playing a lot online. It's also a game that I've previously owned and no longer do. So take that (laughs) for, for what you will. Um, I'm giving Memoir 44 a six out of 10. I think it is a all right game there's definitely some fun to be had playing this probably especially if you're playing online and don't have to do uh deal with the burdensome setup and can quickly play a game and then switch and play the other side of the matchup without you know resetting everything up again uh which is cool to do online and kind of a drag to do probably at home um but ultimately i think Memoir 44 doesn't offer the type of decision space that I personally come to games for. I just don't feel like the decisions you're making are that rich. And I think that the output randomness where whatever decision you make is only a good or bad decision based on the role of the dice, as well as the cards that you and your opponent may randomly draw or not, kind of diminishes the game quite a bit. For me, but I think that's exactly what will make it sing for so many other people who play and love this game. Awesome. Here's mine, Jake. Memoir 44 is a chaotic dice chucking romp that emphasizes flavor over function. There are many reasons to play games, and while someone looking for interesting decisions likely wants to look elsewhere, a gamer looking to learn more about World War II through play should look no further than this content packed opus. Five out of 10. Yeah, same page. And we don't look at our uh, each other's reviews ahead of time. It'd be impossible for Brendan to look at mine. But we're definitely on the same page here. In fact, I think I kind of uh, preceded yours quite well there. Yeah, I, you know, I think we'll get into a lot of the reasons why on the back end. But I'll say my rating definitely reflects... I'm, I'm rating this game how I rate most of our games, which is we're coming at this from the perspective of covering this game's decision space specifically. So my my rating of it reflects that. But I think that there's a lot of reasons why this game is beloved, uh, why you hear people talk about it. And I think Jake and I will be careful to cover that and discuss it on the show because Memoir 44 is a beloved game. And I, I want to talk about why and I want to sort of explore what Memoir 44 offers that a lot of the games that we cover on the show typically don't. So there's a lot to be had in this review, even if maybe it's not Jake and I's favorite game from that classic decision space perspective. Before we get into our deep dive, let's go ahead and get right into the game background here. Um, so this is a, a bit older of a game. It's all the way back from 2004. So while that certainly fits into the modern board game category of things, um, it's sort of on that preliminary edge, right? Right around the same time other classic games like Ticket to Ride came out. And this game comes from an esteemed publisher who really led that wave uh, with Ticket to Ride also is a game they published. Uh, And the publisher is Days of Wonder. They've also published a game of uh, that I really love, a Wolfgang Kramer game called Coliseum. Jake, have you ever heard of Coliseum? Yeah, I've heard about it and I've always been intrigued by it, right? That's the game where you're like putting on a show in your Coliseum and your final score is equal to like your best single round. Yeah, and you have these tiles and you basically have a menu of everything that you can do with the, with the tiles that you have. So it's sort of set collection uh, with 
a menu of sets. It's so interesting. I've only played this game once, but it's always stuck with me and it's something I'd love to revisit. I don't think it's in print right now, uh, but it's a really neat one. The scoring mechanism has stuck with me just from hearing about it. And yeah. I've always wanted to try a game like that. But I think for the same reason that you've only played it once, like ever since I've been in the hobby, it's been a, I guess, like a difficult game to track down. Or maybe there was like a crowdfunding for another one and then something happened with that. Or So yeah, but I'd love to try it at some point. Definitely. And so Days of Wonder, the publisher of Memoir 44, is pretty well known, I think, at this point for they they really publish and champion one big game a year. Uh, so Memoir 44 is, is, I think, in that line. And it's designed by Richard Borg. And you may not know Richard Borg's name, uh, but Richard Borg basically created this command and colors system. And that's the system used in Memoir 44. So Memoir 44 is a command and color system game. Uh, but it was started uh, with, I believe, a game called Battle Lore in 2000 and in, in the year 2000. And then it's a 2000 a and nothing. That, just 2000 and nothing. But he's iterated on this system and used it in other games like Battle Lore in 2006, obviously Memoir 44 in 2004. And then there's games like Command and Colors Ancients in 2006 as well. And then Command and Colors Napoleonics 2010. And what a lot of these games share is this flank system where you have a left flank, a center flank, and a right flank, and a card system that uh, with command cards that allow you to control units in this left flank or the center flank only, or maybe one in each of your flanks. Uh, so I just think it's really interesting and sort of the fact that Richard Borg was a, a war game designer really working for approachability kind of is in line with, J with what Jake was mentioning earlier with Days of Wonder sort of publishing these games that brought board games to a broader audience. Richard Borg was kind of trying to do that with, with war games. And I think that that's notable and interesting and, and sort of cool. So I want to remark on that. Yeah. And I, my understanding is that uh, Memoir 44 is like the most simple mm. of all of these command and colors system games. That might not be quite true, but I think it's certainly on the simpler end, the more mass markety end of that, which is great because, you know, if people like the system here in Memoir 44 and want just like a little bit more, I think that Command and Colors Ancient and Command and Colors Napoleonic are games that come highly recommended also as sort of gateways into the more war game hobby, but maybe just a step up from this. Have you played either of those? I have not. Have you? No, I haven't, but I've, I've always been a bit interested in it. Um, and I think I would definitely play if given the chance. I, I was sort of reading up on these more right when I was joining the board game hobby, which I mm. mentioned on this podcast before. It's like right around 2015. And I feel like Memoir 44 was like, you know, in the top 100 or something at that point or, or a game that would like, you know, was constantly on people's like lists of things to check out and you know, I just wanted to sample everything at that point. Because, um, you know, when you're starting out in the hobby, you don't really know what kind of gamer you are, like what, what your preferences are going to be. Um, so that was sort of how I came to this. And I remember, you know, sort of doing that debate about like, okay, well, which one is the one of these that I want to buy? It's so interesting, Jake, because I also had a really similar experience where, you know, you when you first dip your toe into the hobby, it's sort of like, well, what is out there? And I knew that there would be war games out there, that that was something. And the one that lots of people would recommend as the sort of first stepping stone was Memoir 44. And for whatever reason, I just, I think, knew that it would be harder for me to get it to the table and play. So I never ended up pursuing it. Uh, but it strikes me that a lot of people probably had this experience where maybe it's not the first game, but one of the first. And it's interesting because Memoir 44, you know, people talk about gateway games. I think Memoir 44 is sort of a stepping stone game in some ways where if this was one of the first board games you got and you really, maybe you either really love the, the war game experience and you step in that direction and you go towards heavier war games, or maybe you just really like the simplicity of it. And then you end up being a, a Euro gamer and you sort of step in that direction. Uh, it's kind of cool. Yeah. And I think it's also a game that sort of appeals to people's past, right? Uh, if mm. you were played Axis and Allies at all back in the day, um, which that's so, you know, a ton of people grew up with, then all of a sudden, you know, years later, you're getting into board games and see something like this, and it's immediately going to appeal to that nostalgia immediately. Sure. Uh, be hooked. Like, I feel like this is a game you can sort of play with your dad <laughs> like the general dad out there you know that did like model building and painting in their childhood uh something like this is just going to be so much more approachable than 
perhaps even something like Azul or Ticket to Ride, which is, you know, might be a thematically off pit putting or too abstract for some reason. Like the theme here is accessible in a way of like, we're having a war, <laughs> you know, I'm attacking your troops with mine. You know, anybody who's played Risk is going to see something here familiar. It's sort of within the, I, I think there's like, there's this classic idea of, of board games and this fits with within the general public. And I think it fits so much directly in that. And I, I really appreciate you invoking that situation of a parent, a dad or whatever, bringing this game to a child, because I think we're going to get into this, but I don't think that that's a mistake. I think mm-hmm. this game was designed for that context. And there's some things in the rule book that make it pretty clear. And that I want to talk about more. But first, some of y'all wanted to talk about us in a review on a podcatcher, which is awesome. We always love when that happens. So I want to read a review this week. I think Jake got to read the last one. So I'm going to read this one. We got another five-star review. Whenever we get nice reviews, we always love to read them out on the show, especially if they're funny or quippy or uh, have a sharp critical edge with five stars. Okay, so this one comes from Dominic Domin Dominkach. Jake, what do you think? How do I do? Dominicatch. Dominicatch. Thank you. And it's titled Cozy Deep Dive in Board Games Abyss. Before discovering this podcast, I didn't know that someone could have a quality discussion for one hour about Sushi Go. And then there's a winky face. Which, like, yeah, for sure. I think before Jake and I started the show, we didn't know that we could have a one-hour conversation about Sushi Go. But that's a good episode. Okay, continuing on now back to the reviewer. Regardless, if it is about a game that I have played before or if a game that I want to know more about, it is always such a pleasure to listen to this knowledgeable duo. Keep spreading the joy of board games with kindness and professionalism. Thank you so much for that wonderful review. Yeah. I could never pick between any of our five-star reviews. They're all my favorite, but this one is definitely my favorite. <laughs> See, that's your kindness and professionalism coming through. <laughs> yeah, so thank you so much for that review. We've said it before. You've heard it on other podcasts. Truly, that is the best way that you can support our show. Uh, reviews do so much to help our discoverability and just getting more people into the fold to potentially hear us. Uh, so it means a ton. I don't know if we have any more to read, but... You know, we'd love to get some more in the queue so we can read them out on the show. Uh, the other way, or another way, you can support our show is on Patreon. You may not know this, but we do have a Patreon where you could uh, give us some financial support, which would always go right back into the show. Like by, for example, buying the mic that I'm recording with now, that's really improved our audio quality. So for that, we want to thank our Patreons and also let you know that we have a new Patreon goal. Right now, thanks to our friend Sarul recently joining and supporting our show on Patreon. Thank you. Uh, welcome to the ship, my friend. Um, we are now up to 19 patrons. And we have a goal that if we get to 25 or when we get to 25, Brendan and I will both record a YouTube video, which we will be showing off our top five or 10 games in our collection. Uh, part of the reason we want to do this is because of feedback we often get that y'all have trouble telling our, us apart by our voices. So we thought, why not put a face with a voice? Then maybe that will help you know who's saying what. And you can make sure to I, correctly identify my good takes from Brendan's bad ones. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing that. And if you want to you know, join, give us a couple bucks a month to help grow the show, support us, you can do that over on our Patreon. And I always include a link in the description of our podcast. But it's also just patreon.com slash decision space. I'm really excited to show off all the games that we probably won't ever cover on the show and talk about why I love them or why it was a total mistake and how I ended up with a given game. So it'd be really cool if when or if we get to that 25 uh, patron supporters to we unlock those videos. But also... I just want to really quickly plug Jake. Another cool thing about our Patreon is you get to vote on games that come up and we always share our episode notes. So you can see the document that we're working on for recording all these episodes. And sometimes we're, uh, I share funny takes in there, or maybe you can sort of see how did they go so, so off the wall? They didn't follow these <laughs> notes at all. Uh, but anyway, it's an, a neat little add on and there's a few different reward levels. So whatever suits you. It's a great way to give back and say thanks for making the show. And it really does help us and motivate us to make more content, to create more content, and to just improve the overall quality of the content. So if you do support us, thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you for enduring that quick plug. Let's jump right into the pre-recorded rules 
overview, uh, and then we'll get into our deep dive discussion of Memoir 44. Memoir 44 is a light turn-based tactical war game. To play, players select a battle from the scenario booklet and set up the shared player board accordingly, adding terrain, obstacles, and units to the board for each side as instructed by the rules of the chosen scenario. Because of its scenario-based play, each game of Memoir 44 feels and plays quite differently. Not only this, Oftentimes players may find themselves starting in a disadvantageous position as the scenario rules seek to simulate the real world circumstances of a given battle. For this reason, oftentimes Memoir 44 is played twice, with each player taking on each side of the battle once, then the player who scores the most combined objectives across both plays is considered the winner. Here's how the core gameplay loop of Memoir 44 works. Players take turns, and at the start of each turn, they play a command card from their hand to take actions on the board with specific units. These command cards come in two types, section commands, which typically restrict the player's actions to one of three sections on the board. The board is split vertically into a left, center, and right flank, or tactic cards, which have sweeping or more targeted power, typically not restricted to one section. After playing a command card, players direct any units selected first moving them based on the movement of the unit selected. For example, infantry move differently than armor units, which move differently than artillery. Then players may battle with any selected units. To do so, there must be an enemy unit within range of the unit doing battle. Then the active player rolls combat dice based on three factors, the unit they're battling with, the range from the target, and the terrain. Players typically roll between 1 and 3 dice, and they're rolling for hits, which are shown on some but not all dice faces. If they roll a hit, they remove a unit tile from the unit they battled, and each unit begins with 4 tiles. Once all tiles are removed from a unit, that unit is lost, and the player who destroyed the unit gains a medal. Players take turns back and forth until a player achieves the scenario's objective by collecting a set number of medals, usually four or six as specified by the scenario rules, and while medals mostly come from winning battles, some scenarios reward medals for taking key locations on the board, such as gaining control of a bridge by moving a unit onto it. At the end of the game, the player who achieved the objective first wins, or if players take turns playing each side of the battle, the player with the most medals earned between both plays is crowned the victor. Thank you, Brendan, for taking the time to record that rules overview. Always appreciated. What do you say we get right into this discussion? I would love to, Jake. And I know that, you know, normally we start with let's get right into characterizing the decision space. But I think here I want to, if if you'll allow me, make a point and emphasize this point a little bit, which is that I think that this is the first, Memoir 44 is the first didactic game that we've ever covered on the show. And what I mean by didactic game is that the goal of Memoir 44, sort of transparently, is to teach people about World War II. Has all of these scenarios... Uh, so it wants to educate its players about the battles that are happening. What was what happened in this specific battle? What was the circumstances of the battle? Which side was maybe at an advantage? And I think it wants to sort of imbue a history of World War II. And I'm not just inferring that from the, the game itself, uh, but within the rule book, there's a section at the very start that says from the publisher. I'm not going to read all of it, but it ends with... Um, our fondest hope is that you will also transmit that unique historical heritage onto younger generations. And it, it's talking about sort of the history of World War II and remembering that. So I, I think it's really interesting that Memoir 44 is a game with this goal explicitly stated at the front of its rulebook. Didactic is just means intended to teach. So it's for fun, but also a learning tool. I'm just you know, looked up that definition purely for the sake of our audience and not for myself. Thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but one other point that I want to emphasize with this too, Jake, is, you know, when we first started playing Memoir 44, my brain went to, okay, what what sort of World War II games have I played historically? What sort of war games have I played historically? And what's it closest to? And one thing that came to mind for me was a video game series called Advanced Wars that's very similar. It's a uh, dual-sided conflict game where you have uh, players controlling troops on a map, where you have infantry and armored units and artillery, all sort of within the same lexicon of play. And 
this game is really different than that game because the the way that randomness works in memoir 44 imbues a sense of chaos and takes away some of the player agency which i think it's trying to make a point about the nature of war maybe and it's also trying to make it accessible but the and i found it really frustrating but the more we played the more i got into wanting to understand the actual battles that we were simulating and read sort of the historical context of these different scenarios and every scenario within the game you know there's there's a lot and there's been expansions where they release you know the game has the western front in it these are the mediterranean scenarios these are the scenarios on in the pacific and i think that to squeeze the most out of this game i think you have to come to it from the perspective of saying i want to know what the what pegasus bridge is why does that matter what does it mean for the allied victory in europe or i want to know what this scenario into the cauldron represents in in africa what what is what were these panzer divisions why are they in this situation what led you to this point and i think that curiosity motivates some joy uh that helps this game reach the potential that it can have and it's truly crazy how many scenarios there are (laughs) they're just like basically infinite right i mean not in the base game but if you wanted to make memoir 44 almost like a lifestyle game just with the expansion content it is you know this is a game you could just play you know forever and ever and i think you know take if you love the system love learning about the history it would take you a really long time to to feel like you have exhausted the content that exists for this game, if ever, which is cool. And I think a, a nice thing to sort of know about the system, perhaps before diving in. Yeah. And the other interesting thing about being a game that's so historically based is in all of these scenarios, or maybe not all of them, maybe some ended as a draw, but generally we're talking about battles that were won and lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can kind of feel that in the game right? Where, oh, wow, like, we're storming the beaches of Normandy. And my position as the allies is very much at a disadvantage from the start, which, you know, does teach you, I think, something about, you know, that day and and the odds of the allies taking the beach. Yeah, it's so interesting, because so many of the games that we play try to create balance, right? That that seems like when you're coming to play a game that's a multiplayer game, that balance feels important. And that is not I don't think a direct goal of Memoir 44, like you're saying, Jake, the goal is to create a realistic simulation that's maybe fair that you could have outcomes that come in both ways, right? But ultimately that you do feel those imbalances and the game says, play this twice, switch sides, the player who earns more medals will win uh, overall at the table. But it has different goals. It's trying to have you experience through play some of that adversity. And I think that for me, that's, interesting but it breaks down when you're trying to play this game can from and really care about the outcome because that structure makes it such that you can get into situations where very quickly you're playing your second game one player has no chance of winning anymore do you and right do you go on uh if you're for the sake of seeing how the second round gets decided or do you just go back to the campaign book and and pick a new scenario and, and play a new one and i think every group that will be different but from a sort of decision space perspective that it's kind of frustrating yeah i guess i'm generally not a fan of repeated plays as a balancing mechanism yeah anytime the rule a rule book tells me play this and then play it again and you know the winner will be a res of most after three rounds that's fine but I want to to feel like each bite of that apple is like a fun, balanced experience, I think. But certainly the fact that this is historically based, right? And there's a secondary goal along from like, this is a game that is just to create a fun competitive experience or a fun cooperative experience. Uh, it makes it a lot more, I don't want to say like excusable, but mm. you, you, it's it's easier to like, not care as much because be like okay well i guess we're like learning something like yep the axis sure did win that fight convincingly just like how it happened before and when i owned this game on the table i can tell you i never once set it up again flipped Mm. it and played we would just pick something else to play if we were going to play another scenario just to like try something different because i think this was never going to be a game for me that i was going to plumb the depths of you know, it's something I just want to like learn experience. Whereas on board game arena, 
where it's just so much faster. You know, the, the dice rolling is faster. So you set up the board instantly, which is, I think that's a thing in war games, right? Like you're putting out the terrain, you're setting up all the uh, different sides, the sandbags, the soldiers and all their appropriate hexes. Like it's a bit annoying on the table. I think here, again, it's it's made much more accessible than um, more robust, complicated war games that might have much more terrain, smaller hexes, more units. I don't know. But even here, it's like, it's a bit annoying to set it up. Uh, so like, it really is the accessibility and quickness of it online makes it so you can play, you know, both sides of the scenario faster than one side on the table. And that just makes such a big difference, yeah. right? So I feel like playing on Board Game Arena, I can really play the game as it was intended to play in a way that on the table I never could just because I couldn't personally justify the length of play time to in setup time when I owned it. I do think what you're saying too, Jake, is there is a reason why some people might say, oh, it's great that you can play it twice because then you can just set up the troops the second time. You don't have to worry about changing mm-hmm. the terrain and changing the locations. True. But we're, we're kind of splitting hairs. I think before we get into our classic, let's talk about the decision space itself. I want to talk about one other elephant in the room, which is the theme. And I'm curious, I I think it's helpful for listeners to know sort of where we're at in approaching this theme. Like what games have you played uh, historically with this theme, whether it's, or maybe not even board games, but video games. And how do you feel? Is it a detractor? Does it, is it a bonus? Are you watching Save It Private Ryan every weekend? Is Band of Brothers your favorite web series? Uh, Where are you at with this theme? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, I do think it's an important question for me the theme is a huge negative for me. It's not really something that I personally want to engage in when I was playing, when I'm playing games. It's just a bit too heavy with my personal family history with the conflict. My grandfather is, uh, was a Holocaust survivor, uh, grew up in woods, Poland, uh, and lost his whole family, extended family in the conflict. World War II, and the Holocaust has always been a huge part of who I am as a person. And it's hard to play like a frivolous dice rolling game about it to the point where when I own this game, I never wanted like anytime I was showing it to people, it made me feel like I could never like ask somebody to play the Axis because mm. <laughs> I just felt like weird putting somebody in that situation. And again, yeah. that's like a personal thing. You know, that's me like, putting my own experiences on other people I'm playing with. And that meant like I was always playing the access, which also is sort of like weird, you know, in a sense. So for a game that's like, I wanted to like disassociate the theme from Mm. the experience of playing this game. And for a game that's like, as you point out, like purpose is to like teach about this, like wanting people to engage with the history, which to be clear, I think is fine and a good goal just for me. It's, pretty off-putting and generally like i don't want to play any world war ii games like even land air and sea it's kind of like this is a cool game like i can appreciate it but i'd just rather not engage with that theme so that's where i'm coming from yeah no i really appreciate you sharing that jake and i it's sort of interesting that your experience of the game physically you felt you always had to play the access side and i think that that would naturally shape your experience of it I, so growing up, I, my grandfather was not a World War II veteran and my family didn't live, it was not Holocaust survivors. Uh, my wife's family is Jewish and growing up, my grandfather really, I think he was a Korean war veteran, but he looked back to World War II a lot and he was sort of a historian of, of that, just casually as a hobby. So I was, I watched a lot of World War II movies with him, things like uh, Patton or whatever. And, but I never loved it. Like, I think some people become, their hobby is learning about World War II in some ways. It feels like that's less so now, maybe with our generation. But I think there were definitely people when we were growing up who I could think of who they're really, really interested in World War II history. and, And that was a common thing. And it feels like this game is made for those people somewhat to pass along that interest and that, uh, affection. I also will say I've, I own Airland and Sea, but I own it despite the theme. I knew that it was going to be harder to get to the table because of the theme, uh, playing it with my wife, Maya, or whomever. But I, I enjoy it despite that theme. And then I also I played a lot of World War II video games when I was younger. 
And I think that eventually I sort of felt frustrated because I thought the emotional tone of World War II and the experience of play, there was this really discordant mismatch that I feel a lot here as well, where, I I don't know, uh, media created about World War II, I think can be sort of, especially American media created about World War II, falls into a lot of American exceptionalism pitfalls sometimes. Um, I don't know that this game does that, but I find maybe because I'm being manipulated into it somewhat very moved oftentimes when I'm watching these sort of things because of, you know, psychological uh, tactics about nationalism that work on me despite me being aware of them. Uh, And I, I think that when I'm playing this game, I don't feel similarly. And, you know, World War II is so tragic and it's just from a perspective of humanity and where we were where we were at and when i watch a movie about world war ii i feel that and i it sort of rocks me to my heart uh and when i sit down to play memoir 44 i don't feel that i i am learning and it feels a little frivolous and i i think that not all types of media have to do the same things uh even when they're looking at the same uh depicting the same uh experience but it it strikes me as a mismatch somewhat I don't know. Is that fair, Jake? What do you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I describe this game as frivolous, which I is something I actually really hate to do, and I don't yeah. think it's fair because I think you know part of the reason I love games and part of the reason I want to do this podcast to like share my passion for games is because I yeah. really believe that you know, especially as adults, taking time to like engage in play for the sake of play is one of the healthiest and most important things that we can do for ourselves, for our own mental health and wellness. Yeah. And I think maybe that's that's like the mismatch for me is like mm-hmm. when I want when I'm engaging in play to like engage, I don't want to be necessarily like confronting with my own family's like mm. tragic history. Yeah. Right. I think so I think that sort of like takes me out of it and oddly like i played the same world war ii video games like call of duty 2 growing up yep. um but that i didn't have any the same issues with that and i think that's because it's like it the like is so much more immersive in just like the mechanics right mm. it's you know everything that's like good and bad about video games is like so absorbing that you're just like i'm just staring at the screen like look you know relying on like fast twitch muscles yeah where here like it's so cerebral that I, it's in, you know for better or for worse it, you it's impossible to like be like I'm just gonna like fall into the game because I'm I'm like sitting there waiting for my opponent to go uh, yeah so I don't know I think the other thing that's interesting is like just like there are a lot of other games themes that point to other really dark parts in human mm-hmm. history that like don't tr- like affect me the same way because it's not like my history yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know um. And and I also want to be clear, like, I don't think that there's any problem with people and enjoying this game just for fun yeah, um, at all. Like, I think that's great. And I think, you know, it, at play as like a learning tool, that's great, too. But just for me, it's hard. Yeah, definitely. I I very much, I guess, feel the same way. And I think on one hand, I... I I sort of want when I play this game to learn, right? Like I feel like one of the ways that I can a- appreciate the game is to to learn through that experience. But then we get to the actual playing the game and I feel frustrated yeah, so much that it, it takes me out of it a little bit. And I, I don't know if Memoir 44 is trying to do this, but I, I think you can make the argument that the dice rolling, we're going to, we're going to, this is where we're moving the discussion is this sort of representation of the chaotic nature of war. Right, that that war itself is so chaotic um, and feels seemingly seemingly random. I bet in some circumstances, in a way that is frustrating. But I don't I don't think that that's the point the game is trying to make necessarily. I think the point is trying to make a, a broader just reflection on history itself and the importance of making tactical decisions. And you know, we have these really close up scale conflicts, like the very introduction scenario where it looks at Pegasus Bridge, where some paratroopers landed. Uh, And they're trying to sort of protect D-Day by taking these two bridges. And then you can scale out and this game has even larger conflicts. And I guess, ultimately, I feel like I want to care about my decisions more than the game lets me. Yeah, the dice rolling is tough. So every time you do an attack, you're rolling dice that's going to give you decently 
like medium to bad odds basically yeah. right yeah. like at best you got like a 50 percent hit on a die i think i mean i there's this is also a game just to caveat this right away where there's like an exception to every rule because there's like so much different terrain like so many different like types of troops you could have in a mission that it you know it's almost impossible to be like okay every time you attack you roll a dice to and and you hit on these two things because there's always going to be something that like okay now we're like breaking that rule because you've got like the italian snipers and if they're on the mountain they get to blah 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 um but in general it feels like anytime you attack, you've got bad odds <laughs> of hitting, um, which can make it feel, I don't know what, if there's like a more of a negative player experience because like your odds aren't, aren't as good as mm. you'd hope. Like, but it feels like your odds are worse here than in other like attacking games I've played. Mm. And, and maybe that's like exacerbating the negative feeling when your opponent just rolls like four hits and now you've like, lost the battle on like one foul swoop after you know slowly like dinking and dunking and hitting you know a couple of hits over the past like seven turns it is pretty wild that this game the way that it's set up because every unit has sort of four units with it that you can have turns like jake just described where maybe you three turns in a row you go back and forth and no one makes any progress you end up getting some retreat flags you have to move your troops back you kind of come back in and then one person could just roll the dice and completely wipe um and it's, I don't know. I, I'm so used to when I, I feel like part of digesting this game is that I'm used to knowing the outcome of my decisions in games. And that's just the type of games that we enjoy and that we play. And I think I've driven our enjoyment in the hobby. And there are some games that don't sort of have that, that we really enjoy too, like Broom Service, uh, where the true consequence of what you do isn't fully known, but you know mostly what's going to happen. And maybe there'll be a little bit of a bonus. And I found it sort of from a gameplay perspective. I was like, okay, if that's the case, where am I going to find my edge? How can I make sure I'm better at this game than Jake? And so much of it then becomes, we're going to go slowly. It's, it becomes very much about this plotting movement of taking turns back and forth, not over committing. Um, and then also, once you do commit, you just have to commit because there's these bonuses for sort of close assault combat where you you get to roll a lot more dice. And if you're a tank, you get to attack again and, and actually you get to move again and then attack again. And so it's sort of like bide your time, bide your time, bide your time. Okay, now we're going all in. We'll just see what happens. And the pacing kind of, it feels maybe a little at odds with some of the scenarios even. Um, I don't know. Should we talk about the decisions? Maybe? I feel like I, I got us so off the off our normal flow. Yeah, let's let's do it. So yeah, let's let's just start at the top. So the size and depth of this decision space. Well, the size is variable because yeah. different scenarios will have you having different number of cards in your hand, but it's always going to be between like four and six possible yeah. decisions on your turn. And I think all of them generally are like viable. Well, not all because sometimes you just have something that like actually is just totally trash to you. So they'll say something like fire with all your artillery units like if you have no artillery units use one unit which is just generally just nothing yeah. nothing for you and that's just like kind of oh cool so this just clogs up my hand the entire game <laughs> basically <laughs> great um but generally you know you'll have like we'll say four ish viable options yeah so that's the size <laughs> and i think the depth of the decision space is kind of like getting to to your point, like, how deep can you go? What's the skill ceiling here? Where's the skill floor at? I think it's a pretty shallow. I, and that's not to say more skilled people aren't going to win more often than others, but I think where people are finding their edge, I do think there's some skill in, like, being able to, like, position yourself and, and sort of prepare yourself for the cards that you could potentially draw mm-hmm. at the end of your turn. Um when I've been playing this recently online, um, and I think this is more something I noticed more playing online than playing in person is like, it felt like the edge more often than not came from like somebody internalizing the rules just like a little bit better. And, and like either like my opponent or I making like some horrible blunder Mm. that costs a unit Um, because there are like all these little edge cases and all the different scenario things, different like, just making sure you're really paying attention and knowing what 
the terrain does and what like specialty units are uh, and then taking advantage of that at like the beginner level of this game I think that's kind of where people are separating themselves and I think that's not like a place of skill separation that I find that fun yeah I think for me the most fun decisions that I found myself making were the hand management decisions around the se- the section cards were sort of, you know, okay, I'm dealt a hand that says move one unit in each of the three sections. And this one says move all your units on the left flank. And then I have another card that deals with the right flank or, or, or whatever. And trying to figure out the right sequence based on the board to try to set up a really big all of my left flank turn or something. And does yeah. that work in this scenario? And I think that there... There is a lot of fun and there's some interesting decision making, but I even, I I think your point, Jake, it's funny to me that you didn't, you sort of said, you know, on any given turn, you'll probably have four, four options. And that's true. But then there's all the options that come with moving your troops, which I know you're aware of. Well, and I, I think though that your comment's still really fair because I think that oftentimes the way that the cards are designed and the way that the scenarios are set up, you have fairly obvious things that you're going to want to do with your troops that's probably not universally true maybe in this scenario i'd move into this forest space and not take a turn attacking to just set up positionally more where you would favor to go around and make a a riskier play And, and there's room for a little bit of that but i think most of the time if someone you know we all set up a scenario picked a card and said what would you do i bet a lot of people would pick a similar answer because they're fairly clear and so much of it is about responding to oh that plan didn't go well what's my next plan right so i think people who like making tactical decisions um this game's kind of perfect for you because you're always going to be making you're going to be in a new situation because your your outcome might have your last decision might have failed terribly and you have to find a a new way to approach this problem um, I will say, Jake, I, I like the scenarios that give goals outside of just destroying other units, goals about taking certain locations or something. I think that just that little bit more of a sense of signposting helps direct things a little bit. I don't know. There are interesting decisions to make with the positioning units. And I think that's something that people who like war games probably have have internalized a lot of much mm. better than I have. But I find because the game relies so heavily on output randomness that it's really difficult to, like the feedback is just really strange, yeah. you know, because you could make a really bad decision, I'm assuming, you know, that like a, a expert war gamer would never make. And then you just still like roll a Yahtzee and then you win on the back of it, right? Like, like a, maybe the more advanced players like, okay, I'm going slowly. I'm, I'm you know, I'm favoring position over like getting in range to attack or you know it'd be bad for me to go in and attack here because then i'll just be like a sitting duck for their units but then you do it and you you know roll yahtzee and wipe them out (laughs) and it's like okay well that was that was great Uh, i'm so smart or you know you try and do this more plotting play and then you're like can't draw a card that allows you to like trigger those units again for the rest of the game. And you're like, well, that was, I guess I should have attacked while I had the one chance I was ever going to get. Yeah. Or like you were saying earlier, you can be tricked by outcome bias into thinking the perf, the right situate, the right decision was wrong because you can make the right decision for all intents and purposes, right? Like assuming the outcome goes well, uh, it's the right decision and then just roll poorly and it feels wrong, even though you probably made the best option of it, decision available to you. Yeah. Uh, and I think what I'm saying and dancing around is the fact that when you roll, whoever rolls dice better is probably going to win. Yeah. You know, and there's player agency to give yourself slight odds, but I, it's the type of game where it's like a new player, brand new to the game, could easily be a champion any given round. And I think that the heuristic is is pretty intuitive. And the, the most important heuristic in the game, based on what Jake just said, right, is when you roll when you roll dice, so when you do battle, you always want to roll as many dice as possible. Don't yeah. take attacks where you're gonna roll one die, take attacks attacks where you roll three and just do that more and you'll probably do better. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that, that heuristic feels a little bit too simple. 
ultimately, right? Yeah. There's situations where that's not possible too, right? Or maybe... Well, it's like, okay, I can roll three dice against this unit that has four soldiers or, you know, one die against this unit that has one soldier left and potentially pick them off to get a point. There's a decision to be made there based on positioning and how close you are to winning the game or is it the beginning still? That type of thing. Yeah, I think so. But it doesn't ultimately feel that rewarding in the long run i guess is part of the problem yeah or even then it can be still pretty obvious it's like okay my opponent's definitely gonna win the scenario on the next turn at least this gives me a chance of scoring a point yeah and see that's the kind of metagaming that frustrates me a little bit around the the two structures as well where it's sort of making decisions for the future game i don't know like if it's supposed to be a simulation doesn't that a little bit compromise it and then but i guess you know you would still want to like in a losing battle, do as much damage to damage the as you could. enemy sure. as possible. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. We've never really had a, had a conversation on the show where we're talking about this sort of direct output randomness and how yeah. that impacts the feel of the decision space. Uh, but another thing that it really does is it s- significantly reduces the clarity of the decision space because you don't know the consequences of your actions. You know yeah. possible outcomes, but you know, in most games, when you do X, you get Y. You don't know what getting Y might get you in the future. But here, when you do X, you don't know if you'll get X, Y, or Z. And that really does change the feel uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Makes it... I guess it's like more of a waning game than yeah. anything else. That's the feel, right? You've got soldiers, you're whittling them down, uh, yours and your opponent. And also, if it's easy to get into a point in the game where you have fewer card options because I don't have any soldiers over on the left flank. So yeah. I'm not going to pick the left flank card in my hand. Yep. I think that that's true. I, there's probably an argument for dynamic somewhat just based on getting new cards that do work for you. And you start with, you typically start with a lot of troops on the board and then end up with still quite a few when the game ends. That's true. Uh, but there are some scenarios where you don't have that many troops and by the end you've sort of lost all your troops and i think in those the game definitely does feel waning and when it, it, those scenarios are interesting too because early early outcomes almost matter more because of the snowballing effect that's there and i think that's why a lot of the scenarios don't have that um and maybe we're not giving the game enough credit for because in in some of the scenarios where you have more you do have turns where you can decide oh these troops are weakened and my opponent will only get will only score they'll only get a medal if they actually destroy all of this unit so maybe i'll spend this turn retreating that unit and protect it a little bit uh so have more of a defensive turn uh and then approach next turn with something else and then my opponent jake will have to decide am i pursuing trying to pick that unit off and take that risk or am i going to play more defensively and wait for brendan to approach again and i i think my position in terms of what train i'm in is strong enough that i can wait and those decisions are there there are also strategic decisions, I think, where even though it feels purely tactical, like the the decision space on your turn feels very, very tactical. Yeah. There are, this comes out especially strong playing online because it's so much faster, but because of the scenario, you might say, I'm going to try and bust through their flank, to their flank on the left side, and I'm just, as much as I can, you know, advancing there or i'm going to slowly creep forward this whole game and that's what i'm trying to execute and i think that is where i find the most fun in this game is sort of seeing how that strategy plays out Mm. and and that's where for me the most fun is to be had is just seeing how it played out almost like a space base or something right where you you're sort of picking your general strategy and then it's unfolding before you and you, you have decisions here and there. It may be you audible, but that's probably going to go poorly for you just as it would in a game like space space. Yeah. Um, but really you're just trying to maximize on each turn, whatever your overall plan is. And I guess that is so, not that I have any experience with this or any knowledge of this, but it does sort of evoke, I think, that type of agency of being a general and Mm. directing a military operation. So as we're talking about the decision space, there is value and there is fun to be had there. 
you know, like if, if you want to feel like a general, you know, going back to our CT uh, win episode of different types of agency in game, I think this does have really strong sort of mechanical theming and a really strong or decisional theming, right? Yeah. Uh, where you maybe more than any of the other games we've covered on this show, the decisions you're making are, you know, very thematic. And, and, and you feel like if you're playing a general, you feel like you're enacting a general's plan through play. I think also that, you know, that's so much embodied in the way that the different command cards work too, Jake. The section cards with use of the word flank really emphasize that idea that you're thinking from this zoomed out perspective. And the the tactics cards, the way that they're things like air support. I mean, you're ordering commands, right? That's exactly. what you're doing. Yep. And I think that ultimately maybe that's why it feels a little thematically. I, I think, yes, all a win. And then when at the top of the show, we were talking about why the theme isn't resonating. Maybe that's what's taking it some away is we're missing the, the personal experience of what you're, what the people who you're actually moving are doing and what their experience actually is that makes it feel so um, almost artificial of what the, this is actually simulating. Um, but so I, I don't think, know. I think the theme conversation is really more speaking to our own baggage with the Definitely, theme of than, course. than yeah. anything else. Like this is a highly thematic, highly mechanically thematic, and a highly decisionally thematic game, game. I think, on yeah. all counts. Totally. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. And if you want to know what we're talking about with decisional theme, definitely go back and check out our episode on what we talk about when we talk about theme, um, which, which really gets into to all of that. Yeah. Do you have a scenario, Jake, that you really, that from when you owned it in person or that you've played since we've been playing at some online and board game arena that you really enjoyed? Um, that sticks out in your memory? Yeah, not really. Yeah. And I don't know if that is more because of how I'm like, not trying to like really dig into the theme in the game the way the game wants me to. And I do think my overall strategy as I played this has been just to inflict damage on units more mm. so than trying to go for the objectives that exist. If if I happen to be right next to a bridge that I can take, great. But I typically haven't formulated my strategies around that as much as it sounds like you've enjoyed doing. So for that reason, they all feel they feel different. Like the oh wow, I could, I played one recently that had like a giant minefield mm-hmm. in the middle, and that definitely created a really interesting texture where I tried to you know go around the outside, direct as many troops as I could to the left side, and and break through that way. And then we switched, and my opponent just went right through all the mines, mm-hmm. and kind of and that ended up being a lot more effective. And my strategy, that was an interesting difference of strategy and it played out in our game. I do think that that's where the game, I think for me, kind of succeeds from it being a didactic game where the feel of the decision space does really change based on the scenario. And I feel like you do sort of learn something about these different events. But at times, because of the output randomness of the dice, you might take something away from it that right. might be sort of at odds with what they're trying to communicate. Where in real life, running straight across a minefield probably isn't going to like work out for you. Uh, in those situations i i will say the more i played it though i did kind of like find scenarios that i enjoyed or i was curious about looking up scenarios in real life battles in real life that i knew and to see how they were simulated within memoir 44 so i was like oh what does the dunkirk scenario look like and how's that set up or i mentioned earlier that scenario into the cauldron about in northern africa and reading about that that was one that i really enjoyed playing you just sort of have these tanks and there's lots of mountains that the player in the middle is sort of stuck to and you kind of are on defense the whole game and that really changes the feel if you're sort of i'm not moving very much maybe i'll move one tile or two tiles but i'm being approached and what do i do to try to find an advantage when i'm being approached on all sides by this enemy and uh, i don't know i guess do you have closing thoughts jake like memoir 44 like you mentioned maybe you are interested in playing other war games and if so why like wh- what do you want out of this genre yeah i don't know that i am really <laughs> interested in playing other war games now i yeah. you know when i Back joined then. the hobby i was i wanted to try something you know i think given the opportunity i would try one of those other ones just to see is this system made slightly more complex something that would be more interesting to me from a decision space angle possibly but I don't really like 
games in general that have a lot of edge case rules. Mm. And I think that is what the war game part of the hobby is all about because those are simulating, you know, yeah. when, when you've got a little edge case because these are Italian snipers that's simulating, you know, real actual Italian snipers that gives you a better understanding of what this battle and war was like, you know, um, and, and the same with all the different terrain things too. But that's not something that I get a lot of joy out of sort of the idea as, that I brought up before that, you know, the winner is going to be the person that's like better internalizing all the edge cases and using them to their advantage the most. Mm-hmm. That's not a type of gameplay that I enjoy from a gameplay perspective, but I think from a, it makes sense, you know, from a war game perspective that that's supposed to be teaching about the war that perhaps the person who better understands those things would have an edge in the battle. And that's kind of interesting. I think that for me, I would be really interested in playing a war game if recommended by someone who is really interested in the history. So if they were a big fan of the game and they were, and they wanted to talk about the historical context, I would be so there for that experience. Like, yeah, teach me about this game. Um, And I I think that the fact that it's interesting when there are games where your real world knowledge of a situation might aid you in your playing of that game. We're talking about something so different than the games we typically cover on the show. But I I, I don't think playing Memoir 44 has turned me off to being interested in those experiences or wanting to learn more. But I also think that these types of games tend to be long. The outcomes tend to be a lot that, the strategic paths through them might tend to be fuzzier because of the outcome systems in a way that I don't think that they would ever be my favorite genre. Like I just know that about myself, you know, I'm also reminded by something. I think this is a common piece of advice in the war game hobby, but I'll credit Mark Bigney from so very wrong about games. I know I've heard it from that source, which is that if you're interested in playing war games, sort of the first thing you should ask yourself is like, what period of history am I interested in? Yep. And I think, when you're talking about interest, you probably should be thinking more, or from my experience, it's probably better to think more about like what is of like academic interest, like what have like intrigued me rather than like what is of you know tremendous importance to you know my family and, and legacy yeah. because I think that's not necessarily going to be something that you're going to find like a profound type of experience in Memoir 44 the same way you might if you read an actual memoir by somebody about yep. the war and experience. Um, but if I, you know, Oh, what was the, you know, the war between Athens and Sparta, like, you know, and I don't have a big connection to that. It happened a very, very long time ago. Maybe the command and color ancients, you know, I'd find more joy in just like the type of learning that could come out of yeah. those battles. You know, that is interesting to me. Like, and, and and to be able to be like more divorced from the impact of that and just think like, oh, how interesting, you know, there was this cliff here and that created a bottleneck and now we're playing that out. Yeah. Or is that just the plot of that one Sparta movie? <laughs> 300. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but I think that that's a really good point. And I feel like I, I'm really glad that we had this conversation. And I think that it's so interesting that it's almost an entire genre of games where your desire to learn about real world history and your your openness to that is going to completely shift your your willingness to play the game and engage in it. And I think that that's not as much true about most of the games we cover on the show. And it's sort of a different thing. And, and that's cool to explore. There's another review that sort of like, okay, we're pretty negative here, but it's definitely a game that I had some fun playing and think yeah. a lot of people really should play and check out. But I think the fun that I'm having in it is, feels more similarly to the type of fun that I have in like cooperative games where it's Mm. like, Oh, we're doing this story together. Yeah. You know, and I've had some actually like negative player experience playing online against people who are just like whining about dice rolls. And it's just like, dude, you know, shut up. Like this is a game that's all about dice rolls and you know, you're going to get unlucky and it doesn't really matter if we're doing this story together. But I think just, so often that becomes at odds with the actual gameplay mechanisms yeah. and just the fact that it's a competitive game. Uh, so I think it, this is probably like a game where it's really important that you're in the same magic circle as someone and perhaps like, you know, a father or mother playing with their child 
is a great way to like experience that magic circling and be on the same page. Like we're having fun and we're learning and yeah, you know, whatever, but two random people playing online for ranking points is probably not necessarily going to be a great magic circle for that. And could it lead to somebody getting upset about their die rolls? Yeah, 100%. Which takes us back to that note from the publisher, how our that quote, you know, our fondest hope is that you will also transmit that unique historical heritage onto younger generations with this game. I've added the with this game, but that's what they're really saying. Yeah. And, and I think I, that is a really excellent effort of tying this back up where we started. But I have one more closing thought that I want to okay, great. There, which is that like, here's a question for you. This is really the first like quote unquote, maybe this isn't fair, but I'm going to call it like an Ameritrash style mm. game. We've covered yeah. almost or entirely exclusively European Euro style board games on this show. And I think really so much of our, lens for discussing the decisions in games is kind of based around that side of the hobby yeah like do you think it makes sense for us like does that lens that we've created work for ameritrash style games is this something we should pursue others of on this podcast and you know i'm kind of thinking like do you have any more general podcast thoughts after this experience playing this game and having this conversation yeah, I think that's a really good question, Jake. I, there's definitely a reason we talk so much about theme and our own personal like <laughs> perspective on the theme in this episode because it, it does fall down somewhat. Right. Uh, but I, I will say there's games that fall into the Ameritrash category that I'd love to have conversations about on the show. But how much of those conversations would look like we were our conversation we were discussing Castles of Burgundy? I don't know. Like I want to talk to you about Cosmic Encounter and I want to know your experience with that game and your history with that game. And I do want to talk about some of the design decisions in that game and the decision space that it creates and what that pushes towards the social experience of that game, right? Because that's so much the strength of that game. So I think there, there's certain design elements that are pushing you into certain social experiences that become the sort of narrative equity that people bring with them and why people love that game and love telling stories about it. And I think here, right, the, you just said it. The, the game is supporting a social experience and you have to be excited about the social experience that you're going to have. And if you're coming at it from you want to be ranked number one, on board game arena at this game i more power to you but don't more play power with to me you for sure yeah <laughs> enjoy your as i called it at the outset an opus because for me i will find something else but yeah i i think that it's interesting that when we go towards taking our lens towards more quote-unquote ameritrashy style games we're always going to return to a conversation that ends up being let's discuss the game and then let's discuss the type of social situation that the m- mechanisms create for us and let's have a conversation about that so much more than let's talk about the yeah. mechanisms of the game itself yeah what do I you think I, I think i tend to my initial thought is that our lens of what we sort of tried briefly of thinking through the size depth type you yeah. know clarity of the decision space for a game like this or a game that fits more in the ameritrash style which again, not a, not a slur, that's just like, I'm just using that word because that's something I think that other people know. Doesn't really get us that far, doesn't necessarily yeah. get us to interesting discussion in the same way it does for talking about games that are like truly the interesting thing and the sole reason there is because we're like exploring the mechanics. And here, it's just all roads lead to rolling a dice, you know, yeah. or drawing. And we didn't even hardly talk about the fact that like, the cards you draw are so unbalanced. Like you could draw really great cards or you could just draw cards that are just not that do, do half nothing. as much as the yeah. other card that your opponent just drew. Um, All of this is compounded by the fact too, that you every like, it's tough to have a conversation about a game where every time you play it, it's a different game. Yeah. Like maybe we could have more of a conversation about the Pegasus bridge scenario or yeah, the, maybe we should have just Omaha played Beach only scenario. that over and over. Yeah. The intro but, scenario. Yeah. <laughs> that honestly, that probably would have been a better like way to get into a more like mechanics focused conversation. But I think there's more, I don't value, think that though. would have been very fun either. Exactly. And I think this was a good conversation and I, I think there were, there were good takeaways and the game ultimately is not playing the Pegasus bridge scenario over and over again, right. unless I don't know. There's probably been some kids who did that because that's yeah, what they knew. How that's to probably say. the tournament scene. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I think this has been a fun conversation. I'd love to sort of keep this conversation going in our Discord. So if you have thoughts about 
us covering Ameritrash games in the future uh, or how we should maybe cover them. If there's questions that you have about this game that you feel like we didn't answer and you'd like to hear, the Discord is the perfect place to talk about that and keep this conversation going. Often that's where the most valuable insights come from. And I think that this could be a discussion that is well-suited to be picked up there and elaborated upon. So as always, you can join us in the Discord by clicking on the link in the description of this podcast that will invite you right in to the fold. Uh, But until next week, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Decision Space. It has been a pleasure. And thank you to Hembry for our intro and outro song, Reach Out. Hope you all have an awesome day. Bye.